From Sydney Opera House, welcome to It's a Long Story, a podcast exploring the stories behind the ideas. I'm your host, Hamish McDonald. My name is Lev Grossman. I am a journalist. I've been the book critic at Time magazine for 15 years. And I'm also a novelist, author most recently of the Magician's Trilogy. When I was growing up, I wanted to be a cartoonist. Lev Grossman is the author of five books, perhaps most notably his series beginning with The Magicians, described by almost every critic out there, perhaps unfairly, as Harry Potter for adults. Born in June of 1969, the son of poet Alan Grossman and novelist Judith Grossman, he was introduced early to the works of C.S. Lewis and went on to spend years as a teenager playing Dungeons and Dragons. He attended Lexington High School and Harvard College. His personal hero growing up, James Bond. He has a day job as the book critic for Time magazine, but lives a life engrossed in fantasy, a passion he now shares with a legion of fans. I bristle whenever fantasy is characterised as escapism, he says. I think fantasy is a powerful tool for coming to an understanding of oneself. So, Lev Grossman, take me back to the beginning of all of this. You've talked about a home of middling happiness. What did that mean? <laughs> well, I grew up in uh, I grew up in a very literary household. I think that's the first word that comes to mind. Uh, parents, both English professors, both writers, a house full of books, a house full of people. I think who did more reading and communing with books than actual talking to each other. Uh, I think we spent a lot of time in our rooms, doors closed. Why the doors closed? Because you weren't wanted in the kitchen or the living room with the <laughs> adults? My parents were very committed to literature. They spent, uh, particularly my dad, spent a lot of his time in his study. Uh, and when he wasn't writing, uh, he was reading or talking about reading uh, or teaching um, other people how to read in new ways. It wasn't a homey house. It was um, rather a house where uh, you were given your book and, and pointed towards a, a chair and then you went and read it. It's funny really because you know uh, books are these wonderfully confessional documents where you sort of um, learn about emotions and, and your and inner lives. Uh, but we sort of neglected our outer lives I think. So there was no sort of family community around the kitchen with <coughs> Sunday lunches being cooked. A lot of time in your own bedroom reading. Can you describe the room for me? Well, I'm a, I'm a twin. I'm an identical twin. So uh, a lot of my early life was spent in a room shared with my brother. We uh, had beds on the opposite sides of the room and used to throw things at each other. I lived deep in American suburbia outside of Boston. Which itself is a deeply alienating uh, uh, place to grow up uh, because you tend not to know your neighbours very well. So your mother is English. She was in London during the Blitz, as I understand it. And for her there was, or for you at least, there was a connection between her and the work of C.S. Lewis. You were given The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe very early on and it had a profound impact. Yes, it really did. I must have read that book when I was seven or eight. 
And it truly – it was the first book that really – that sort of taught me what novels are for. It transported me to uh, another place which was more vital and interesting and um, exciting than, than reality. And I, I, spelled, I did feel a special connection uh, to those books in part because my mom uh, had gone through the Blitz. She had been transported to the countryside like the Pevensey children while Hitler was bombing London. Although uh, unlike the Pevensey children, she did not as far as I know find her way into a secret magical world uh, and actually – Supposedly, she claims did something so naughty that her host family didn't want to know her anymore and sent her back to London um, to be bombed by Hitler because apparently that was a, an appropriate punishment for whatever it is that, um, that she'd done. Do we know what it is? <laughs> She's never divulged it. Um, she does claim, however, to have gotten drunk with C.S. Lewis later when she was an undergraduate at Oxford. And I've checked the dates on this and they do line up. So uh, it's entirely possible. When you say that reading The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe taught you what a book was for or could do in transporting an individual, I mean, at that young age, what awareness do you have of that or is it just reflecting on it now? Well, it's funny. I mean, the, the Narnia books and especially The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe, they are incredibly compelling reading experiences. But they are in a way powerful metaphors for reading as well. Uh, you pass through the wardrobe uh, into another place. Just as the Pevensey kids go to Narnia, uh, you open a book and go through somewhere else. Uh, the funny thing about them really is that uh, obviously Lewis wrote them uh, in part as arguments for um, the Christian faith. And you know, at the end of the book, the Pevensies come back to reality and they are so changed, uh, sort of inspired by their experiences in Narnia and their um, intercourse with Aslan that they uh, have a new understanding of reality and, and go out and embrace it in new ways. I always hated the end of The Lion, the Witch and the Wardrobe. Um, and you know, the books really turned me into almost like a miniature nihilist or existentialist. I thought that this world that we lived in was utterly meaningless. I had no idea why I should pay any attention to anything at all. The only thing that mattered uh, was what was going on in Narnia. And if I could just get there, if I could just find the portal, uh, then I could really sort of start getting on with my life. So there was a genuine sense that what you were reading, this world, was better than the one you inhabited. I was a very sort of melancholy, depressed little kid. Um, and I really had trouble paying attention to reality. I think in part because, you know, the Narnia books gave me a way to articulate the sense that, you know, there has to be something more. Um, I, the, the reality seems so dull and awkward uh, and poorly organized and unsatisfying. There has to be somewhere, something more than this. Uh, of course, there isn't. Um, but, you know, that longing was uh, grew in me or was implanted in me from very early on. Do you know where that melancholy came from at a young age? Oh, who knows? I don't know. Uh, my therapist undoubtedly knows. Uh, I ought to ask him one day. This was really the start of a relationship that you have with fantasy and other worlds. You've talked about a, a game called Myth, Fallen Lords. You said, I must have spent months of my life playing it. And what <laughs> I most remember about it is the sense of immersion, that sense of totally being swallowed up by a world. Tell me about that game. Yeah, sure. Well, 
as I've said, I was very I – was, I was an intense consumer of fantasy but you know, the, also of science fiction, of, of comic books and very much of video games. Uh, I am of the – kind of the first generation of really serious video game players. We had Pong when I was a little kid. Uh, which is sort of where it all started. And I got very immersed in my 20s in a game called Myth the Fallen Lords, which is not a terrific game for, name for a game, but that's what it was called. Uh, and it was, you know, it won't stun you to know that you were in charge of a kind of fantasy army and you deployed them and you fought battles with um, uh, with other armies uh, and you won or you lost. But uh, what I really liked about it was it was the first game I ever played where the the landscapes really looked real. They'd been sort of – someone had studied a little geology somewhere along the line and, and the the landscapes felt very real and you could just sit there almost. Sometimes I wouldn't even bother to attack with my army. I just – I'd sit there. I'd listen to the fake digital bird calls and sort of move the camera around and just feel a kind of relief like – uh, you know, I've, <laughs> I've I've got a temporary foothold somewhere else, uh, and I became quite addicted to it. Uh, and that's not the first or the last game that I, I got very addicted to. Reading your descriptions of playing Dungeons and Dragons, it sounds quite similar. What is the appeal of getting into the detail of these things? It's not familiar to everyone. Mm. Certainly not to people who've had those relationships with, with games and, and fantasy worlds? Well, you know, it's the pleasure of it, the experience of it. It's kind of twofold. And, you know, part of it is something I think most people are familiar with in some form, that longing to escape, to just shed the details of, you know, your failing relationships and your unpaid quarterly taxes uh, and things like that, and just get somewhere where the it's not that there are no problems, but the problems are so much clearer. Who's right and wrong uh, is much clearer. You're always right, and you know the, the 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 pressure, just the unrelenting pressure of reality, just just lets go for a minute. And then you know there's something else there as well, which I sort of insist upon when I hear people uh, fantasy or even just games dismissed as escapism. They are also you know the problems that you face in those games, and some sometimes they're echoes of of your real life. They are kind of transmogrified versions of reality uh, and they are a place where you can kind of grapple with your problems in a serious way and come to understand them. And then when you return to real life, sometimes your understanding of your life is actually enriched rather than impoverished. I want to ask you about that though. You, you're on the record as saying that you do bristle when you hear <laughs> uh, fantasy characterized as escapism. But it seems from your own description of those worlds that that's exactly what you do. You escaped. Well, uh, like I said, there's a, it's a twofold experience. Just to take the example of Westeros, for example, the world in which George R. R. Martin's books take place, uh, which I was a fan of from very early on. Those books were coming out in the mid '90s, before all of this, before all the hoo-ha of the of the TV <laughs> show. They were already a huge sort of cult phenomenon. You know, nobody would, I think, willingly, in actual fact, escape to Westeros. I would put my own lifespan in Westeros at about seven minutes before you know I was picked off by a. a Wolf. It's not somewhere where you would choose to – it's not somewhere you go where there are no problems, where everything is easy. But uh, it's a place you go where you can actually um, look at the way different problems are solved. You know, you can they, – they, the, the emotions that you encounter in Westeros are very real. Even though it's a fantasy world full of fantasy people who never existed, the emotions they stir up in you and that they cause you to work through – uh, are very real and no less real than the ones you have in reality. Is it the case that in fantasy, 
things may be simpler because the distance between the good and the evil is greater and more clearly identified than in real life. I think that was the case um, earlier on in the kind of evolution of the modern fantasy novel, certainly in, in Tolkien uh, and, and Lewis. You could pretty much identify who the villain was. Um, and you were always on the side of good, but it was a different time. I think with different problems. It was it was World War Two. You know, people uh, had this very powerful sense uh, that they were they were under siege. I think the problems of today are quite different, and the questions of of, of moral identity are much more complicated. And as a result, fantasy has become much more complicated as well. In a lot of cases, certainly in the case of Game of Thrones, you know, it's a story that begins with the death of the king, and the the sort of overarching question of the series is who will become become king at the end. Um, it's not always clear who should become king They're, or it's certainly not who will become king. Um, it's a much more morally complicated universe and a much crueler universe, a much more arbitrary universe than, uh, for example, Middle Earth. I think fantasy has evolved to deal with new kinds of problems you know, uh, it, 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 and it does so in a really sort of real and valid way. Certainly, you know, you wouldn't throw out Shakespeare, for example, just because Shakespeare has witches and fairies in it or monsters. Um, this idea that um, stories that had that don't that don't necessarily resemble the real world and play by real world rules uh, don't mean anything or don't matter, um, I think is a raw, quite a wrong headed one. And I think Shakespeare or Milton or Dante would probably agree with that. As you were growing up and, and being absorbed into these worlds, were you conscious that, okay, I'm a fantasy person, I, I like this stuff, or it was a sort of gradual and organic trajectory that, that leads you to where you are today? I think it was a kind of more vexed question um, at the time when I was growing up. I was very invested in fantasy, uh, especially the Narnia books, but also Dungeons and Dragons and all sorts of things. We didn't have the internet back then. Um, I'm 47, uh, so I grew up in the 70s and 80s. And, you know, there were two big differences there. We didn't have the internet and we didn't have Harry Potter. So we didn't know or I didn't know that there were a lot of other people who were into this stuff as well um, and they carried with them a certain, um, shall we say, social stigma. They were not they were not cool. Did you have many friends? I did. I did have friends. My friends were nerdy friends. Um, but, you know, in the hierarchy of groups of friends uh, within our schools, I would not say that we were necessarily very high on the popularity um, scale. I wasn't part of the cool kids and I could see the cool kids from where I was and I think uh, I'm, not, I'm really not one of them. But there uh, wasn't a desire to be one of them. Of course there was. You, everybody wants people to like them and think that, they're, that they are good. And uh, what I began to say was, you know, fantasy was a big part of my identity. Uh, you know, at the same time, it was problematic to have that as your identity. And I will add that growing up in the household where I did, you know, fantasy was kind of looked down upon. And the older I got, the further da looked down upon it was. You know, my parents were really into the idea that uh, of the great books and the canon uh, and fantasy was kind of shameful. So uh, again, it was it was part of my identity, but it was a problematic part. You've written a lot about growing up in your household and there being this focus on having something called a life plan, uh, and certain things <laughs> fit into a life plan, other things did not. How did fantasy and these sorts of pursuits fit into that? Uh, <laughs> the idea of the of the life plan. Everybody talked about the life plan in my family. Um, who's got a life plan? What's your life plan? Uh, are you executing on the life plan? And you know, my when you say everybody, this was your father. Yeah, father, siblings. Um, you know, there was a strong sense that that everybody wanted to be successful and sort of be special. 
I don't know. It was just something that went on in our family, uh, as it does, I think, probably in a lot of families. And we'd look at people and think, oh, you know, they, they, they're not really doing what they want to do or uh, doing anything that interesting. But, you know, we have to do something interesting uh, in this family. Uh, and so when so my – It was a sort of joint project that you were all in together. It was a shared understanding that as a Grossman, uh, which sadly is my last name, um, that you know, uh, you're expected to do something interesting and exciting and you know, not go off and do something uh, boring like be a lawyer. I was going to do something more special than that. And that was to be my life plan. And as a, you know, as a, a, a my life plan emerged very slowly um, uh, that I wanted to be a writer, and that was considered to be a good thing to do. Not as good as being an intellectual or an academic, but uh, that didn't pan out for me. But I think it came as a shock and possibly a vexation to my parents when I became the author of a book that was uh, shelved in the fantasy section. The magicians. Well, it was not, I should add, my first book. It was my third. Uh, and my first two, you know, were more on the literary end of the spectrum. Um, I think everybody was surprised. I was surprised when I wrote a fantasy novel. Uh, but as it turned out, writing fantasy was where I found my voice. And I had been looking for my voice as a writer for a long time, probably 15 years at this point. Uh, and that's where it turned up. You, I read that you said you always thought you were going to write literary fiction, something like Jonathan Franzen. Is that from that family ambition? Is that where sure, that came from? Of, of course. You know that was that was part of part of the legacy. I think of of, of my parents uh, was this idea of high literature, literary. I don't even know what to call it. Um, you know the kind of stuff that wins prizes and um, is taught in in, in universities. Uh, and I try. I really tried to do that, and yet uh, for some reason. Maybe precisely because my parents uh, 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 so clearly wanted it, uh, I wasn't able to do it. So you find yourself in 2004 having your first child, Lily, and this doesn't really fit with the life plan model. In fact, children in your family are not considered to be something that you would necessarily have an ambition to possess. I, I do like to say that I come from a long line of childless couples. It's a real family How does that <laughs> tradition <work? laughs> that do, doesn't literally work that way. Um, and yet, you know, my parents' uh, child rearing wasn't it, – it, it wasn't considered, you know, it wasn't sort of pre prestigious or exciting. Uh, uh, they were really focused on uh, different kinds of work, and uh, as it turns out, my neither my brother nor my sister had children. Have had children. They still could 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 manage it. But you know, when I had kids, uh, I sort of realized uh, right a big part of my life is going to be child child rearing, um, which was a, a, a novel and not hugely popular popular idea um, within my family. This wasn't a sort of on the day. At the bedside realization, though, this is a sort of traumatic realization over a relatively prolonged period of time, wasn't it? I mean, you, you, it can only be described as unusual the way in which you kind of reacted when Lily was born. I don't want to mischaracterize it. When uh, Lily was born, I don't. I had never loved anybody as much as I loved, you know, that little baby. But uh, when it came to changing diapers, I'd never changed a diaper before. And when I having doing it for the first time, I thought, obviously, this isn't how it's actually done. There, there must be. There must. Somebody must have solved this problem. There must be another way. It was. I. I, I had never realized uh, how demanding child rearing was. Uh, it was an adjustment. And you know, it, it, they were. I, I often thought to myself. 
myself, wow, well, that was the end of my writing career. Um, you know, now I'm just, I'm going to do this now for the next uh, 18 years, um, which happily turned out not to be the case. But, but you said at that time you became a bad person, that you would sort of mutter grievances about the child <laughs> at the child. I, I was struggling with a lot of things at that time. My, my, my professional career was kind of stalled. My writing, uh, as I mentioned, you know, it was um, – I, I, I was – I'd been writing – at that point for 15 years, I published a couple of books, neither very successful, neither very satisfying to me. Uh, as it later turned out, I was in a marriage that wasn't the right marriage for me. Uh, I, was, I was struggling with it. It was, a, it was a low point and I struggled with a lot. And yeah, part of what I struggled with was child rearing. There's a day or two every week where I had Lily all day. And, uh, you know, I sort of uh, – I struggled with that role um, for the first year or two. Uh, it was really hard to adjust to. I can see you now even struggling, you know, <laughs> as, you're, as you're talking about it and reflecting on it. A dark time, you have talked about it being a, de- a depressing time. How do you find your way through something like that into a well? It must be said, creative space. Well, it's it's one of the funny things about uh, a lot of writers, and certainly me, that um, it took a lot of I think external pressure for me to really break through creatively and uh, and and find my voice and start writing in the way that that I ultimately wanted to. Um, a lot of pressure had to build up. Uh, and you know, by the time I was 35, you know, I'd been struggling with depression for a long time and hadn't really um, sought any help with that. I was struggling with my job and my writing and my marriage and adjusting to being a father. Uh, I was struggling with the fact that I was uh, entering early middle age, which is a painful experience, as everybody knows who's ever done it. Uh, and I think it was that point, that kind of pressure, that um, finally caused me to break through on the page. And was there a particular moment that you recognize as that happening or is it only on reflection that you see that period as providing that? It, it's never as, dra- as dramatic as, as you want it to be, certainly in, in, in writing, which tends to be a very boring activity, at least to watch. But uh, I can remember going uh, for a week into the, in the countryside and just saying, look, I, you know, because I'm, I'm, I'm stalled with whatever book I was working on at the time, um, just as a joke, as a lark, I'm not taking this seriously. You know, I'm going to try to write this book about the education of a wizard, which was not like anything I had ever done before. And I, I didn't know how seriously to take it. I told myself it was just, um, you know, for fun. But I, that, that week, I remember very clearly the kind of writing I did. I enjoyed it more than any other writing I'd ever done before. It was fa- it went faster. It was sloppy. Um, it came out in big rushes, but it was more passionate and more satisfying than any writing I'd ever done. I s- strongly remember um, I was borrowing a, uh, a house from somebody, uh, and there was a piece of mail on their desk, and uh, there was a name on the envelope, break bills, and. I, I remember taking that name and I sort of named my school of magic Breakbills, thinking I would change it later. But uh, I always ended up I ended up um, sticking with that name, which came off this random piece of mail in this borrowed house. And so much stuff like that just came together for me in a big rush. See, have referenced reading your own Amazon reviews of your of your earlier books. What were they like? Were people kind? 
Uh, well, as always, there was a, there was a range of responses. Uh, reading your Amazon reviews, by the way, it's not something I necessarily recommend to uh, writers who are just getting published. Um, they're very unfiltered. But I do I do remember the reviews for Warp uh, were predominantly negative, which was a painful thing to read. It, it strikes me as unusual that someone who is a professional book critic. Would be intrigued by the the unfiltered random comments on Amazon. You would think, since I've seen the sausages made, I know where book reviews come from. That I would be able to keep them in perspective and and uh, just tr- shrug them off or absorb them. Uh, but I'm remarkably thin skinned um, about that stuff. Uh, I find it hard to read read negative reviews or positive reviews for that matter. I take it all to heart um, in a way that's kind of embarrassing. Why hard to read the good reviews? It's that's sort of hard to explain. It's a very intense experience reading somebody writing judgments about my work. So intense that even when even the the, the positive ones, uh, it's still kind of painful. Uh, I look at them because it's useful. It, I I, it, I like to know what other what happens to other people when they open one of my books. It's a good thing for me to know as a writer. But it takes quite a bit of work for me to kind of assimilate that information in a calm way. Can you talk me through how you go about constructing a fantasy world? Because you seem intrigued, almost obsessed with the detail, what the costs are, what the what the minutiae of these worlds is. Is that all prepared in your head before you start writing or does it come as you go? I don't know if I can explain it, but it, it doesn't happen the way that you probably think. I know that Tolkien, you know, famously wrote, what, like a whole dictionary of Elvish or whatever before he wrote The Hobbit. It doesn't work that way for me. It was much more, uh, when I started out, I, I had been thinking a lot about Harry Potter. Um, I had been thinking a lot about Narnia. And I almost set out, you know, with those worlds kind of as, as, as templates. And I would take them and it was almost like a letter to, to, to Rowling and Lewis. Imagining, imagine they lived together as husband and wife. And uh, I was writing a letter to them that would arrive in their mailbox. And I would say, Joe, uh, when it was uh, – yes, it was Clive, but people call them something else. They call them Jack or something. Joe and Jack, you know, I just want to tell you that I, I loved your work so much. It's meant so much to me uh, as a person, as a reader. Um, and yet there are also things uh, that I feel like as a now middle-aged father – uh, that are missing from from your books that your books haven't covered realities about life that have been painful and difficult for me. So I'm going to rewrite your books. I'm going to take these worlds that you that you created that I love, and just kind of change them, make them to look make them look a little bit more like the the world I live in, um, and make these stories a little bit more about about my life. So in the case of Harry Potter, that would mean moving it to America, um, making Harry uh, or the the, the hero, a, a sort of uh, an obsessive reader who has trouble telling the difference between fiction and reality, make him depressed, make him uh, maybe not as charming as Harry, uh, make him make him he's a drinker, give him a give him a, a, an alcohol problem, sex life, mood disorder, you know all this stuff that that uh, is sort of messy and you know is not front and center in, in Harry Potter. Likewise. Imagine taking away – take away Dumbledore, take away Gandalf, take away, you know, that avuncular advisor figure which is so common in fantasy. Take away the big the big antagonist. Take away Voldemort and Sauron. Um, suddenly you're left with magicians who – they're kind of at a loose end. They're a little bit lost in a way that I hadn't seen very often in fantasy novels but that I felt uh, in my own life. So it's sort of personally important to you to – 
bring these stories closer to to your own existence? Personally important, but also I felt like, you know, there were things that you could say with fantasy that hadn't been said, that fantasy was such a powerful storytelling mode. Uh, and there were things that that had sort of people had never used it to say, but that it would be a really powerful tool for getting at. People that love Harry Potter, that love Tolkien, that that you know adore the Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, are very attached to these worlds and the rules within them and the shape of the characters. And yet, you've given yourself license to do with them what you will, in a sense, by creating a sort of adult version of these worlds is that you find that risky to do i thought it would be but uh one of the things you, that uh I, I came to realize is that readers now they like it it's very familiar to them to take existing fictions and play with them they feel a lot of license to do that just look at fan fiction for example which is an, a hugely popular activity among people who uh, are often younger than myself, although not always, uh, this idea of taking a story just the way Gene Reese did in, in Wide Sargasso Sea or, or Tom Stoppard did with Rosencrantz and Guildenstern, taking existing characters um, and writing a new story about them that maybe reshapes the story and brings in new issues. It's a very natural mode for readers and writers these days, this borrowing of, 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 of IP, almost like you're sam- sampling it, like in music. It's a very natural, very easy mode for people, and uh, they don't kick and scream about it the way you might think. There's one critic that wrote about it. In less flattering terms, he said, the goal, it seems, is to be so derivative, so plagiaristic in its parts, that there's some somehow circles back into a kind of meta magic and achieves a kind of renewed originality. But too little of it is truly inventive. In the end, it basically amounts to a redrawing of Narnia in crazy colours. Wow, who wrote that? Uh, A guy, Jason Key. I mean, it's harsh, but clearly... Uh, it speaks to the same point that you address yourself. Well, there is a line. Uh, you can't cut and paste and uh, expect people to be impressed. I think people have different feelings about where the line is. Obviously, Jason and I disagree about where the line exactly is. I have heard less of that than you would than you would think. I guess the point I'm asking about is is where you draw that line and how, how you sort of determine that you're on the right side of it. Uh, when you borrow something, uh, when when you when you take something from from another author, I think the 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 rule of thumb for me is that it has to be clear why you're taking it. You're not taking it because you can't think of something else. You're taking it to do something new with it. So when I borrow a school for magic, which J.K. Rowling did not invent, invent, um, she borrowed it from from other people. Uh, I want to be sure that I'm doing something with it. In my case transforming it, moving it to America, you know, making the kind of work you do there different, the kind of risks you run there different, the kind of things that people do there. It's all, it's all very different and all very transformed. Uh, and I want it to make clear, want to make clear that there's a, you know, there's a, I'm making a point. And if it's, if, if it's clear to people what the, that, 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 I, that I have a point, then I'm not doing it just because I'm lazy. I think everybody's fine with it. So, so what is that point? Well, I wanted to write about I heard write a, a buildings roman, write a novel about education, um, which is not a particularly new idea. And I wanted to write about a different kind of education than the one that Harry Potter uh, underwent. Um, one that is about learning the difference between fiction and reality, about learning that you have power, uh, but also Harry. Uh, one thing about Harry's power, he generally didn't have to figure out when he got up in the morning what's it for. 
What's my magic for? Oh, right. There's that Voldemort guy. He's trying to take over the world. I should really stop him using my magic. That is what my magic is for. It's for fighting evil. Well, the characters in The Magicians, they have to figure out as part of their education, what is magic for? Um, they're thrust out into the world. There's no monsters for them to kill. There's no quests for them to perform. There's no Voldemort for them to defeat. So what is it for? Uh, that's much more like the kind of education I had to undergo uh, in the real world. Do you think the fact that the starting point is so familiar to so many people is what lends itself to that kind of mass popularity? I'm, sh- I'm sure it helps. I mean, Harry Potter has become such a broad phenomenon. It's really a kind of anthem for this whole generation of people that have uh, grown up with it. Uh, but having grown up on, on Harry Potter, um, I think a lot of people you know, start to think, I loved those books when I was little, but now I'm dealing with problems that weren't in there. I'm dealing with problems like sex and I can't get a job and, you know, I drink too much and I'm depressed and I wish that I were in a book and not in reality. Uh, uh, so in some ways, it kind of uh, I, I try to kind of pick up where Rowling left off, not in a, by the way, in a critical way. I really love the Harry Potter books a lot uh, and if I'm willing to bet been to more Harry Potter conventions than most people listening to this podcast. <laughs> um, but w- was there more to say? Yeah, there was more to say. The the comparison with Harry Potter or this line about Harry Potter for adults, I mean, it, it is it is slightly lazy in the sense that actually you're drawing much more on the line, the witch in the wardrobe in your own imagination of things. Do you bristle against that description? <laughs> But uh, uh, Harry Potter for adults, that description, no. I, f- I find it incredibly flattering. It's, it's, a, it's a bit glib, but then again, it's a marketing slogan. So uh, what are you going to do? <laughs> as shorthand for the books, I, I think it's as good as, as good as anything. So how has the success of all of this uh, affected you because it has sort of thrust you into this kind of stratosphere. I don't know. <laughs> what, what layers the stratosphere? Maybe, is there one below that, like the, I don't know, <laughs> mesosphere? Maybe I'm, maybe I'm there. But there's people above me that I can see. It's been a very powerful and, I don't know, validating experience. I, I mean, one of the things about uh, my career is, is that uh, I wasn't a wunderkind. I did not have any early success whatsoever. I wrote for 15 years, really, if you want to include the writing of The Magicians, 20 years before uh, I had anything really break out. So uh, it's an incredible, it's, it's incredibly, what, validating, satisfying. It's an incredible relief that all that time when I felt like I was, um, I was wasting my time, uh, I was undergoing a kind of education. Um, I mean, I, again, not to be glib, uh, but writing writing novels has always been my dream and uh, I get to keep doing it. It's a wonderful thing. The tap that you say was turned on when your first child was born, is that still on? Is it still easy to write? Do you still get these kind of rushes of words that, that flow out of you or is it more difficult than that? Well, um, since then, I've, I've continued to have children. Uh, I've had two more and if I can just keep having more and more children until I die, you know, hopefully the tap will, will, <laughs> will keep running. <laughs> Actually, I think I've had all the children I'm going to have. Yeah, as it turns out, um, maybe, maybe, it's, maybe at some future time I will lose my voice but as it turns out, once you find a voice uh, as a writer, 
it's sort of hard to shake. The thing that's been really interesting to me um, has been the fact that um, my struggle with depression is mostly over. I got treated. I got medicated. Um, I got past a lot of the personal and professional frustration that was really causing me to think painful thoughts. So the stuff that I write about is quite different uh, when I started writing The Magicians. Um, but the tap, the tap's still flowing for now. Where are you writing? Just paint a scene of, of, of where it is when you're sitting down to, to dream up these worlds. Well, you know, a lot of the time uh, I, keep, I, I, I still go to my job, uh, which is at, at Time magazine. Um, so um, generally, you know, I carry around a MacBook Air and I will write on the subway. I'll write at work if I have an hour or two off. Uh, I write at home a lot as well. It's um, uh, I, 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 as a as a dad and a working person, um, I found that it's uh, it's no good to get too attached to any particular writing setting um, because there is no guarantee uh, that when time arrives uh, for you to write, that you're going to be at your desk. For someone that grew up in a house where, where sort of having children was not really uh, the done thing, you've ended up with three, as you, you point out. Is the home in which you inhabit with them one where there's discussion about having life plans? Or is it one in which there is a sort of shared appreciation of, for example, fantasy worlds? Oh, a bit of both, I, th- <laughs> I think. Um, hopefully there's, there's, uh, the two aren't, aren't entirely mutually exclusive. I'd like to think that I'm quite unjudgmental about um, what my kids uh, read and, and do with their leisure time. Uh, there, there's very little book shaming in my house. Uh, I'll say that. I'll say that embarrassed for about some of the things they read? Oh, do I feel embarrassed? No, I read a lot. I, I, at least for the 12-year-old, I, I read a lot of what she reads uh, alongside her. And you enjoy that? Yeah, I do. I um, I'm I'm very, what's the expression? Catholic in my taste. Um, a lot of things give me um, uh, a lot of a lot of kinds of books give me reading pleasure. Okay, but give me an example. What do you sit down with her and enjoy reading? Well, Harry Potter, uh, for starters. With my littler kids, I've been very much enjoying the Thirteen Story Treehouse series. I believe we're up to. 78 stories unless I'm miscounting uh, I've enjoyed the <laughs> I've enjoyed those a lot Roald Dahl never gets old especially Charlie and the Ch- Chocolate Factory which I ended up writing an introduction to the Hunger Games books uh, I, especially the first one are pretty fantastic it's interesting, though, your description of reading as a child is sort of alone in a room or being pointed to a chair. But your description of your own kids reading is alongside a parent. Is that a deliberate decision or a reaction? Well, one has to give them space. I think with my oldest child, I kind of pushed her to read the Narnia books um, with the result that she, um, because she has a powerful will, um, said, Dad, uh, I will read many things in my life, but I will never read the Narnia books. And to my knowledge, she ne- she still hasn't. So one has to give them space. Uh, it's something I, you know, one of my great pleasures in life what is is talking about talking about books with my kids. Why is parent why parents reading to children so important? Parents reading to children. Yeah, I've learned a lot in reading about you in relation to the theories about the importance of magic uh, in interpreting different things in adult life, things like drug use, things like 
depression. When you're writing your material, is that is it with that in mind or is that for the consumer to develop an understanding of themselves? I've found that it's bad practice for me to think too hard about what my books are about while I'm writing them. This is an argument I had with my therapist on many occasions. I'd be starting to tell them what I – I, I would be telling him what I was what I was working on and he would say, that's interesting because you know that's a symbol for this and that. And I would have to say, stop, stop, don't tell me. Don't tell me what it's about. You can t- when I'm done, you can tell me what it was about. Even when I'm writing, it's about following feelings, not ideas. Things tend to just – die a little bit when they're just about ideas. But do you like in reflection knowing about what is sort of embedded within your 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 writing? Yeah, I do. And it's always amazing the things that people find and then I find after the fact. You know, magic is an incredibly powerful metaphor for a lot of things as it turns out. It can be Definitely a metaphor for uh, addiction, the kinds of double lives magicians lead. They have this secret pleasure that they pursue in private and which can consume their lives, um, but they have to keep it sometimes from their families. Um, but magic also turned out for me to be a lot about that kind of release of what's inside you that comes when you're writing and you're writing well. Um, one of the s- strange things about the magicians for me is there's, you know, there's a scene early on where the main character, Quentin, really cuts loose with magic for the first time and discovers that there's all this stuff inside, inside him uh, that just comes gushing out and it transforms these wonderful things that are in the room and everyone's amazed. I realize now that that scene was about the experience of writing that scene. That is, when I was writing about Quentin doing magic, I was trying to – I was really describing what was happening to me when I was learning how to write – so then to the sceptics of fantasy, of which there are quite a few, what do you say? Do you encourage them to, to, to read fantasy, to try and look for those messages? I just encourage them to, to just think about the fact that fiction doesn't necessarily have to look like the real world. It tends to, you know, these days, and it has, generally speaking, for the past 300 years. Um, but, you know, think, go, go further back. Think about why uh, and how books like, you know, The Divine Comedy or The Fairy Queen or The Odyssey, why those books are so powerful and mean so much. Um, they mean in different ways than a book like The Corrections, which I also love. Um, but those ways are no less valid. Uh, I encourage people to read fantasy the way they read Homer and they read Shakespeare um, and let it mean in those rich ways that we let those texts mean. I mean, my work is not as good as Shakespeare's, I hasten to add, but it uses some of those same modes. Lev Grossman, we'll leave it there. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a Long Story is recorded at the Sydney Opera House as part of the Talks and Ideas program headed by Anne Mossop. Our show is hosted by me, Hamish MacDonald, and is produced and edited by Cara Jensen-McKinnon. Our theme music is by Rishikesh Hirway. We're recorded by Jason Blackwell and Oliver Brighton, mixed by Brendan Zacharias. And our executive producer is Danielle Harville.